Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rouleau University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we're continuing on this discussion about what to do when anticoagulation fails. Listeners, in our last episode, which hopefully you've checked out already, we talked about the very systematic approach to understanding, based on the history and some additional lab testing and imaging, how we can figure out if our patients truly did fail while taking, for instance, a DOAC and what to do in these situations. And I'm excited to follow up on this conversation today. It's going to be really good getting into what happens when warfarin fails and when the injectables fail. So again, episode written by Dan the Man. Can't wait to learn from him. Cool. Let's get going. So without further ado, let's roll that show. All right, guys. So Dan, I have to ask you, you texted us about some sandwich shop that you went to recently and you were really excited about it. So we are opening the floor to you on this very public forum to share with us why you thought the sandwich shop you went to was the best sandwich shop you've ever been to. It is just incredible. I'm so lucky that I can walk to it. And I swear that is not the main factor in my loving this place. I actually have a bag of sandwich sitting right here next to me that I'm very excited to get into when we finish recording. So I'll have to blast through this episode. It's called Build Sandwich Palace, BSP for short. Everything is either sourced from an awesome source here in town or house-made. Everything is incredibly seasoned. Sandwiches change week to week. They are open Thursday through Sunday. Check them out can't go wrong. Bill's Sandwich Place. Not endorsement. They're not endorsing us. They're not paying us to say this. I legitimately love this shop. Do they have house-made potato chips? I think the chips are also very important for these sandwich shops. They have a house-made potato salad that will absolutely knock your socks off. That counts. That counts. Big potato fans in the house. I can see. It's the kettle-cooked jalapeno chips, though. That goes well with the sandwich. So even if they didn't have in-house potato chips, if they sell the kettle-cooked ones, the ones with the green bag, I think they're usually, I forgot the brand, big fan. But, you know, if the next time you go to the sandwich shop, be sure to mention that you have a podcast that you're a co-host of. And, you know, maybe we could see a little bit of free sandwiches are perfectly fine and accepted. So we'll take that as well. So guys, again, last time we had this great discussion about what to do when our DOAX, which we're often prescribing for our patients with new DVTs and PEs fail. And as Vivek alluded to, you know, the next conversation from here is what do we do when we put our patients on warfarin for whatever reason, and the warfarin ends up failing? How do we approach these patients? And this is certainly a much trickier discussion. So I'm excited to get into this today. So Vivek, I think you said that you had recently seen a patient where this was applicable. So I'm curious to hear what the case was, and maybe we can use that as our launching off point to have this discussion. Yeah, so I've got a good case here. We have a 36-year-old gentleman with a history of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, or APLS is what you'll see. And this was diagnosed after a stroke and a left lower extremity DVT about a year ago. He comes in with a red leg, but this time it really is concerning for maybe cellulitis. An ultrasound was ordered to look for microabscesses, and the patient calls your office to tell you that they found a clot in the leg on that ultrasound. He's concerned because he has been very careful with his warfarin prescription, and reviewing his INRs, they have been firmly within the therapeutic range. So what do we do now? All right, I officially revised what I said in the first episode about checking the drug level being the first step. The first step 
is figuring out whether or not this is truly a new clot. What leg did the team find that clot in? They found the clot in the left leg. Okay. And did they, by chance, compare that ultrasound to the old imaging? Like, how do they describe the clot on the report? Naturally, there was no comparison listed in the imaging report. This is no knock on radiologists. It just depends on where you got these imaging studies done. And it just says a non-occlusive thrombus observed in the left popliteal vein. Okay, so this is a pretty common scenario. This patient had imaging done at a new location, somewhere different from where they had their original diagnostic imaging, and a critical alert gets sent because the reading radiologist doesn't have the context to know that this clot had been there all along. I often counsel patients that the blood thinners we prescribe, they're not clot buster drugs, right? The body's main priority is to restore blood flow, and if that means by fully digesting the clot, then the clot may go away completely, but often it means just tunneling through enough of the clot that the blood flow is restored, or even collateralizing blood flow through other vessels around the area of obstruction. And so that residual clot in the vessel often becomes what we call organized or essentially converted to scar tissue. In this case, we really need to compare that ultrasound that this patient just had to his original one to see if the clot is in the same place. It makes a lot of sense. So when we pulled up his old imaging, his clot extended from the femoral vein through the popliteal, and this was felt to be a residual clot like you had just described. But what if it hadn't been that simple? What if this patient really did have a new thrombus despite his perfect INRs? So when that happens, the first thing we need to do is try and understand if this patient's INRs really mean what we think they do. And what I mean by that is, does that patient's INR correspond to a therapeutic level of factor 10 suppression? And particularly in the case of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, there can be some disease-specific influences on this lab testing that can really change what the INRs mean. Vivek, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is a very, very hypercoagulable state. It's something that you've probably heard about and probably are extremely confused about and don't really know how to order the testing and always want to order it as an inpatient. So we're going to take a brief aside here to explain what antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is, and then I'm probably going to be quiet the rest of the episode. This is really my only contribution here. So what is antiphospholipid antibody syndrome? It is a hypercoagulable condition. So you can diagnose antiphospholipid antibody syndrome by looking at a few different tests. One of the big buckets is looking at ELISA testing to identify antibodies. There are many different antibodies implicated in this syndrome, but what we do know is that we can test for two specific ones. One is the anti-cardiolipin, and two is the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein. And what you'll see is we get an IgG and an IgM for both of these antibodies, and we really only find them clinically relevant if they're super high, and what I mean by that is greater than 40 This will be in our show notes. We'll have another episode on APLS. I just wanted to mention it here. The most important thing, though, is these will be falsely elevated if anybody is sick. If somebody has strep throat and you tested them for these antibodies, they'd probably be elevated. So a kid with strep throat, you'd be like, oh, man, they have APLS, but they really don't. So the person has to be out of the hospital in the outpatient setting. And we like to do this off anticoagulation for the third reason, this other test, which is a functional test. When you think about antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, What is that? It's an antibody to phospholipids. And when we run our coagulation testing, the way that's done is that you add the patient's plasma, which has things like clotting factors and things like that, and then also add into the test tube phospholipids and calcium, things that will promote clot formation. And you look at the time it takes to form a clot. 
In the case of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, particularly those who are higher risk, they will have an antibody that will bind to the phospholipids that you add to the tube, and they will falsely elevate these tests. So you'll have a falsely prolonged PTT and a falsely prolonged PT, even though you don't have a bleeding tendency, right? Because it's just messing with the assay. It's not an antibody that's messing with your factor activity. It's an antibody against phospholipids, which is required by the assay. So I'm guessing in this patient, the biggest thing is to look, what is their baseline PT and their baseline PTT before you started anticoagulation? That can really help you, right? If they had an elevated baseline PT or PTT, that could tell you that, hey, there's an interfering substance in there. We talked about in our hemophilia series, we really fleshed this out. But this is what's happening here, that you have an antibody against phospholipids which is required by the test. So you have a false elevation here. So maybe your INR of two to three isn't actually an INR of two to three in somebody without APLS because you have a baseline elevation. So you're not quite getting enough anticoagulation. Thank you so much for going over that. That's exactly the way to think about it. That in fact, these antibodies were originally called lupus anticoagulants because they elevate these test results falsely. They are not in fact anticoagulants. They are pro-thrombotic as mentioned in any event. So because of this possibility of an artifactual elevation of the PT, we want to directly measure the degree of factor 10 suppression. And to do that, here at Rulo University, we have access to a chromogenic assay that measures factor 10 activity. So this test uses a chemical substrate for activated factor 10 that changes color when cleaved by that activated clotting factor. And it basically determines a percent of normal factor 10 activity that's present in the patient's plasma sample by comparing the degree of color change to a standardized curve. So when we're doing this test, when we're directly measuring factor 10, whether it's by a chromogenic or some equivalent assay, the therapeutic range that we're looking for is factor 10 activity between 20 and 40% of normal. And remember that the higher the INR, the more suppressed that patient's clotting factors are. So that 20% corresponds to an INR of three in patients that don't have some artifactual elevation in their tests. And 40% corresponds to an INR of two. And that's the range we want to see these patients in when we're doing that chromogenic confirmatory testing to determine what their factor 10 level is. So basically, Dan, you're saying you're trying to reestablish a correlation between the INR that is easier to use, more universally able to be checked with this more esoteric study to confirm whether or not two to three is appropriate for this particular patient. That's exactly right. And, you know, by and large, these lupus anticoagulants tend to have most of their impact on the PTT. And that's the reason why we're not necessarily doing this on every patient with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Most of the time, the PT is not affected. But depending on what antibodies are present and at what titers, there can be this influence on the INR. And so that's why it's important to keep this in mind. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I want to clarify for our listeners that the anti-10A activity we talked about to say, is DOAC there, yes or no? That's an anti-10A activity. It's not the factor 10 activity. And that's what this test that Dan is discussing measures. And remember, the PT is simply an old school representation of roughly what is my clotting factor activities, but subject to interference with interfering substances, for example, the anti-phospholipid antibody. So for a patient like this, and in this case, 
that his INR was 2.7 and his chromogenic factor 10 result came back at 48%. So that's discordant, right? Dan had talked about how 20 to 40% would make sense for an INR of 2 to 3, but this guy with an INR of 2.7 had a chromogenic factor 10 at 48%, so it wasn't suppressing as much as we expected. His therapeutic range of INR was then increased to 3 to 4, and once he achieved that INR range, his chromogenic factor 10 assay was repeated and resulted within the therapeutic range. Speaking of switching somebody to an injectable anticoagulant, I think that really wraps up the case for a warfarin failure. That's really when you're thinking if their INRs were therapeutic, right? That's the first thing you're going to, is the clot in your old? Are their INRs therapeutic? And if their INRs were therapeutic, you better be thinking there might be an interfering substance here. There might be an antiphospholipid antibody messing with my assay. So my INR is not accurate. It's not the right INR measurement, this goal of two to three. Maybe we need to change our goal. You might be asking, why don't you just monitor chromogenic 10 activity? Because it's a very hard test to run expensive, requires a specialized center, so that's why we don't just willy-nilly run chromogenic factor 10 levels looking at the direct drop in factor 10 activity. So let's go for another case. So let's say we have a 27-year-old female at 32 weeks gestation. She has a minimal past medical history but developed a small DVT in her right lower extremity a few weeks ago and was started on anoxaparin, also known as Lovenox, at 1 mg per kg BID. She is now coming into your office reporting worsening swelling and pain in her right leg. She got a repeat ultrasound, and that confirmed significant proximal extension of the thrombus. It seems like we consider these injectable anticoagulants the most effective. When I started residency, people who had malignancies really could only get these injectables like anoxaparin or Lovenox. So what do we do now if this patient seems to be clotting despite already being on anoxaparin? This is definitely not a good situation to be in, but, you know, this is something that I had learned from one of my attendings when we had a similar situation. When we typically recommend, for instance, one milligram per kilogram for our patients when he or she starts Lovenox injections, I actually had no idea that in general, they're getting pre-filled syringes from the pharmacy as opposed to having to measure out exactly one mg per kg from a vial. And so these pre-filled syringes come in standardized sizes. And so if you, especially in patients that are on the extremes of weight, they may either be in some cases underdosed because we are just giving them the pre-filled syringe as we would for our standard patients. And so in reality, these patients may have had a breakthrough event not because they weren't taking their medication religiously or they're having absorption issues, simply because we are not dosing them with the appropriate therapeutic amount of Lovenox. And so this is not something that we typically do, but in these situations, it may be helpful to once again, check these therapeutic levels to ensure that the patient is in the appropriate range. And so certainly check with your lab to make sure that this is feasible, but you can check Lovenox levels or these low molecular weight heparin levels, just as we would for like warfarin or IV heparin, but in this case, you're using the assay we had previously talked about and targeting a drug level between 0.5 and 1. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, you know, it seems like something, oh, if we have these therapeutic ranges, why aren't we just checking this on everyone? Unfortunately, we don't have terrific data to support these therapeutic ranges. They're not super well established, but I completely agree with you. That is generally what we're aiming for. We're looking for that low molecular weight heparin level of 0.5 to 1. And it's important to note that these have to be drawn at a specific time. So can you guys talk about that? Why can't we just get a random level, assuming these patients will be at a steady state? Yeah, so that therapeutic range that we do have, minimally established though it may be, is specifically for drug levels that are drawn four to six hours after a dose of anoxaparin is taken. And so it's also important that a patient have at least three shots at a given dose prior to measuring that level to make sure that the level you're measuring really represents where they're going to settle out at on a specific dosing level. If you do find that a patient's drug level is below or at the very bottom of the therapeutic range, you can try and increase their dose to that next available dose level. Again, thinking about these pre-filled syringes and repeat that testing after their third shot, you know, four to six hours after their third shot at that new dose to see if you've kind of gotten them better into the range. If they're already therapeutic, you're in a really tough spot. Of course, like before, we want to make sure there isn't some good anatomic reason that their clot formed again or worsened. And just like before, we need to make sure their adherence is perfect before we say, okay, we need to make a change. But if you can't find any other reason why they may have had worsened thrombosis, despite being in the therapeutic range of anoxaparin, you really don't have much choice but to try and push them a little bit higher in the therapeutic range. This is not a decision to take lightly. The risk of having bleeding complications at higher levels of the drug is real. And you need to counsel your patients carefully on things to look out for to understand that we're in a tough spot because we're seeing worsened thrombosis despite a therapeutic level of an injectable anticoagulant, kind of are the best that we have in our armamentarium for fighting clots. And so it's a really tough spot, fortunately, extremely rare situation to be in, but just very careful titration to try and push that patient to the upper end of the therapeutic range is really where you have to go from there. Well, hopefully we don't end up there. In this case, fortunately, the patient had been prescribed 80 milligram syringes for her weight of 92 kilograms, and so Ronick called it, and her drug level came back at 0.4. She was increased to 90 milligrams BID, and after three shots, her level was in the therapeutic range. She delivered her baby without issue several weeks later. So anything else you guys want to mention before we wrap up? Yeah, there's just one last thing I want to say. It probably goes without saying. If you have a patient that's having multiple breakthrough events on therapeutic anticoagulation, particularly if these are happening in rapid succession, like you know, just clot after clot seems to be forming, I consider that an indication for inpatient admission. You want to get a patient in that situation on an infused IV anticoagulant and try and figure out if there's some other event that's happened that's causing this apparent thrombotic storm. You want to make sure they don't have indication for additional therapies like antibody eradication or complement inhibition. If you have a patient having lots of breakthrough events despite apparent good anticoagulation, they need more workup done. I also want to point out that we have sort of a flow diagram algorithm that we put together based on what we talked about in this episode and the one before, and that'll be available on our show notes page for both episodes. Again, this was fantastic, and I think this flow diagram will be really, really helpful. But for our listeners, I'm just going to go through this one more time to really hit this point home, because I think that these conversations are incredibly important. But as we're alluding to, they happen all the time. So number one, if you have a patient coming into the hospital with a new clot 
while being on therapeutic anticoagulation. The first step is we want to confirm, is it truly a new clot? Is this the first time that they're in our hospital system? Maybe this was diagnosed elsewhere. So really want to confirm, is this a new clot on our imaging? Thereafter, we want to make sure that they really have failed. And one of the things that we can do is to check a drug level on our patients. If the patients are subtherapeutic, then, you know, it does raise questions about an adherence issue or maybe an absorption issue that the patient is having based on prior history of GI surgery, for instance. But if the levels are therapeutic and the drug is present, then we also want to confirm confirm that they are adhering to the drug. Because remember, in some cases, this test is just binary. It's either yes or no. It doesn't tell us if the patient is truly therapeutic. Let's say everything lines up. The level is therapeutic. The patient endorses that they are very, very compliant with the medication. Then the next question here is, is there something anatomical that is causing the patient to have stagnant blood flow? If the question is yes, then in general, we can keep the patient on the same agent. And then we want to try to figure out, is there something that we can alter or rather bypass to fix the anatomic issue? If anatomy is not part of the problem, then we have different options. So if anatomy is not a part of the problem and they were previously on a DOAC, well, then this may be an indication to switch them over to something like warfarin or a heparin-derived product like low molecular weight heparin or Lovenox. If the patient was on warfarin, then this begs the question of whether or not the INRs that we've been following are truly representative of what that patient's anticoagulation status is. And that's where the chromogenic factor 10 assay comes into play. If the patient is subtherapeutic on the chromogenic factor 10 while taking warfarin, then you know we can adjust their therapeutic ranges. If they are therapeutic, then we can adjust the therapeutic range once again, but maybe try to alter the regimen to try to get them to that higher end of therapeutic. And then if all of this is not the case and the patient does not have anatomy that's a problem and they've previously been on low molecular weight heparin, for instance, and they're still having a clot like our patient that was pregnant, then again, it begs the question of, you know, are they on the appropriate dose? And if they are, pushing them to that upper end of the therapeutic range. And that's essentially how we approach our patients when they have clots while on therapeutic anticoagulation. Great summary. And my two takeaway points here is that for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, if you have strep throat, you'll probably have these positive antibodies. So stop sending the tests. And the second thing is that if you get these low molecular heparin weight levels, you need to have three doses in the system and four to six hours after that third dose. That's the key thing is that timing matters for how the nomogram works for the levels. Great reminders all around. Yeah, I'm glad we got to go through this, guys. Thanks so much. All right, y'all. Well, until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.